John, my husband, that I've never gotten so much positive feedback before my sermon <laughs> has even started. So so grateful to be here this morning and really to be among uh, family and friends. So why don't we pray before we get started this morning? God, thank you again, just that you are the way maker, you are the promise keeper, you are our deliverer. Thank you for this time that we have just to pause and to hear from you. I pray that you would just um, calm our hearts, calm my heart and our minds, and give us ears that are just willing to listen to what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. Well, my husband John and I have moved eight times in the past four years that we have been married. And by the grace of God, we are still married, mostly because John is a kind and loving man, and John McNally has taught me to cultivate the discipline of silence. <laughs> Long car rides. So the reason that we've moved so many times, it's not because we just love the thrilling experience of lugging furniture up and down stairs or uh, putting a bunch of kilometers on our already very student car or the beautiful sound that packing tape makes when you stretch it over many, many boxes. <laughs> I hate that sound. No, I hate it. But each time we've moved, we've moved in response to God sending us. God's sending us into different lands. And he sent us into some pretty interesting lands. Newfoundland and Labrador with its vast, beautiful landscapes, just not in the winter. <laughs> Nova Scotia with its abundant produce and the most delicious coffee I have ever had. New Brunswick, which is still very much a land where most of our friends and family live. And PEI, the land of cow's ice cream and beaches forever and ever. Again, just not in the winter. <laughs> And each time we've moved has been an adventure and a test of our faith. We've often moved uh, to places where we have no idea who people are. We don't know anyone. Um, stepping into roles that we have never done before. Uh, trying something out, like I said, completely new, some job uncertainty. And we almost always get the feeling once we land, uh, once we know where we're going to live, because we often don't know where we're going to live, even after we arrive in that province, of... Was this really right? Did God really send us here? Are we sure? Now, I'm really glad this morning to see a full house, even though you heard that it was going to be on the book of Numbers, okay? I tried to come up with a catchy title so that you'd still come. If you didn't know that, you're here now and it's too late. Um, the truth is, Numbers is not really a glitzy or a glamorous book, except for maybe the story of the talking donkey, which we all could agree is pretty entertaining. But nevertheless, God has really brought this passage uh, to my heart this semester, and I knew I was kind of heading in the right direction when I listened to Andrew and Cam, my classmates, also preach on moments where God's people and we can find ourselves in the middle. Because here in the book of Numbers, in these chapters, as we've heard, the Israelites are very much in a place where they're in the middle. The captivity of Egypt lays behind them, and the promised land, the land that God has brought them to since the covenant of Abraham, lies ahead of them. So more specifically, the Israelites, as Jeremy read for us this morning, are in the wilderness of Paran. And here at the beginning, we should anticipate the excitement that comes with finally arriving at an anticipated destination. So picture Frodo finally getting that ring to Mordor. Spoiler, spoiler alerts for you. Uh, picture an Olympic athlete 
athlete finally getting to the games after training their whole life. Or maybe picture yourself getting to the end of your degree here at Acadia Divinity College. It may have taken many years. <laughs> As the Israelites find themselves in the wilderness of Paran, they're on the cusp of coming into all that God has delivered them for, carried them through, and promised to them. It's been a long time coming, and there have been struggles and sidetracks. Liberation and lament, manna and moaning, forgery and forgiveness, covenant and complaint, pain and provision, rehab for rebellion, and generosity for a generation more prone to quitting than committing. And all leading up to this moment, the promised land, Canaan, is just around the corner. And God says to Moses, send men to spy on the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. Now, Glenn told me he was not going to be here, so I'm... My interpretations are good to go. Uh, but from what I've read and studied, because I did read and study up on this passage, um, this group is not assembled in order to determine whether or not God can take the land. These spies were not sent into the land of Canaan because God wasn't sure whether or not the Israelites could take it or because he was doubting his choice of real estate. But rather, God commanded Moses to send men to spy out the land, perhaps to further prepare them to take a land that was already going to be that, theirs, or even maybe to get the group excited about what was going to be coming next. The invitation maybe was, come and be energized at the sight of the land that flows with milk and honey. Come and see with your own eyes the fulfillment of God's promise to you. So this is how things start out, and things are looking pretty optimistic. But as we've already heard this morning, the group returns, and I can almost picture Moses going, yeah, yeah, so how was it? How was it? And then going, well, you want the good news first or the bad news? It's not exactly a triumphant report. They say, we came to the land which you sent us. It does flow with milk and honey, and here is its fruit. Yet, the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified, and they're very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, giants. I can almost hear the kind of concerned murmur that would have gone through the crowd at this first report. And it may have dampened some of the initial excitement. But maybe, sure, there'd be some obstacles, but all was not lost. That seems to be the perspective of Caleb, who pipes up and says, Let us go up and occupy it, for we're able to overcome it. But instead of the spies saying a hearty, Yes, you're right, Caleb, let's go. They actually, they consort themselves and they come up with a second report that is actually more dismal and discouraging than the first, and maybe even slightly deceptive. They say, actually, no, we're not able to go up against these people at all. They are far stronger than we. The land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great size. And we even saw the Nephilim, not just the Anakites, but the Nephilim from whom they descend. And to ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. And here's where things start to fall apart, and that anticipation that we feel at the beginning starts to fizzle out a little bit. So we've got to take a moment and ask, what's going on with this group of spies? Were they all just like sixes on the Enneagram? Are there any? If you're here and you're a six, I love you. I'm a seven, so I love everyone. Or maybe they suffered from a term I've heard recently that I love called analysis paralysis. You're so busy analyzing what is in front of you that you're frozen and you can't make the next move. 
Or we're told that they were all leaders among their tribes. Maybe they were just doing the responsible thing by not leading their people in a direction they weren't sure would be best. But the truth is that it runs deeper than all of this. Somewhere on that mission, the mission that was promised and prompted by God, those leaders took their eyes off the prize. They took their focus off of God and his promises and his provision and his faithfulness and started focusing on the obstacles. Their hearts turned from trust to terror, from confidence to confusion, and from exact evaluations to gross exaggerations. When we take our eyes off of God and start to focus on the obstacles, it starts to affect how we see things. We can be prone to exaggeration. We can convince ourselves that the odds are stacked against us. We can start to doubt whether God really sent us or really promised us or really fights for us. This passage is a great reminder and warning for us today that those who are considered leaders are not immune to losing focus. Instead of seeing a land that flowed with milk and honey, these leaders saw a land that devours its inhabitants. Instead of seeing the size and strength of God, who had been bigger and more capable than any foe they faced so far, they focused on the giants who inhabited the land. Instead of seeing themselves as God's chosen people, they considered themselves to be grasshoppers. They took their eyes off the prize. And they declared God's promised mission instead to be mission impossible. And rather than this moment in numbers, going down as a celebratory triumph, it becomes known for being one of Israel's major failures. A story that should be filled with excitement and celebration turns into one of mourning and misery. And the negative outlook of the leaders spreads like a contagion to the whole assembly. They cry out and they long to go back to Egypt and they even scheme to appoint a new leader. Clearly, things are not in perspective here. But a story where God's promises are eclipsed by obstacles and giants isn't that unrelatable for us today, is it? One commentator I read in preparation for today said that Numbers is the book of the difficulty of having faith. And for that reason, it's our book too. The truth is, we all have our giants, don't we? Those things that when we focus on them too long seem so big that we feel like grasshoppers. And we forget that we have the God of the universe on our side. We know God is sending us, and we know that he has called us, and we know that he has promised to be with us. But the giants of things like fear or anxiety or corrupt systems or injustice or insecurity or intimidation or doubt, they just look so big. They look so strong, like they could devour us. We've all had moments, I think, where we echo the feelings of the Israelites. God is not coming through on his promises to me. He isn't big enough to take on the giants that I'm seeing. He brought me here just to leave me here. Now, this story does not end well for the Israelites. This is not one of their prouder episodes. <laughs> but their distrust and their lack of faith leads to a whole generation passing before a new generation can finally enter the promised land. Yet there is a glimmer of hope for us in this story this morning. Among the terrified ten, one commentator observes, are the trusting two, Caleb and Joshua, who have their eyes on the prize. There are a few things that really stand out to me as I hear their declaration of confidence in God in 14, 7 to 11. First, they say that the land is good. It's exceedingly good. 
And this is not like a naive comment that there are absolutely no troubles. Keeping their eyes on the prize did not entail them having to put on rose-colored glasses. They saw the same land that everyone else did. But rather, the land was good because it was the good God giving it to them. They say, if the Lord is pleased with us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. The way that Caleb and Joshua keep their focus when everyone else is having vision issues is by remembering who it is bringing them into the land, that it's not by human power, it's not by human wisdom or armies, but it's God who will bring them. They also keep their focus through maintaining a confident trust that leads to obedience. They insist, don't rebel against the Lord, don't disobey. Don't fear the people of the land, for they're no more than bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. See, the spies, they say that the land will devour them, but Joshua and Caleb say, actually, God's going to devour our enemies. If they were speaking today, they may have said, this will be a piece of cake. (laughs) Caleb and Joshua trust that God is not seeing this as mission impossible. These giants are no match for him. He is not concerned. And because of this, they are ready to take a step forward when everyone else is wanting to turn and run backwards. And finally, they stay focused by having an awareness of God's presence. They declare, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Let me ask, where is God sending you today? What promises of his are on the forefront of your mind, uh, your family's mind, your community's mind, your church's mind, your neighborhood's mind, as you look to what's next? Are you ready to go where he is sending you, ready to take that step forward, to taste the goodness, even if there's some obstacles in the way? And maybe this is a question that's more on my mind because I'm graduating um, this semester, although not the seminary has been like wandering in the wilderness, okay? It's been, it's been a very fruitful time. <laughs> but what I'm getting at, though, is we have to be like the trusting two in this story. We all face giants that make us feel like grasshoppers. But a giant has no chance against a grasshopper in the protection of the God who fights for us. We can't turn back when things look challenging, but instead we have to obediently fix our eyes on the prize, looking towards the one who has provided everything we have ever needed through his son and whose kingdom is ours to bring to places that are inhabited by giants. The truth is that fear and anxiety, corruption, injustice, insecurity, doubt, apathy, hopelessness, they will not devour us because we serve and love a God who devours them. By his strength, we're protected and we are held in his promises. As we step into what God has for us next and we see the potential struggles and the obstacles, we echo the words of Joshua and Caleb. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And we also echo the words of the risen Jesus. Fear not. I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. I feel like in my own personal history, I've had my fair share of giants that have taken me down, maybe temporarily. Um, But through the grace of God, there have been some giants that um, we've been able to face. We've been able to keep our eyes on the prize. And I can't imagine what John and I would have missed out on if we'd focused on the giants Uh, instead of the prize when God was sending us. We would have missed out on witnessing kids come to Christ in our summers at Newfoundland Adventure Camp, watching them get baptized in their camp t-shirts. 
we would have missed out on the amazing formation and work that God wanted to do in our hearts here at Acadia Divinity College and the immense blessing that it is to hear from all of you how he's working in your lives as well. We would have missed our call to ministry and PEI and the faith conversations and baptisms and prayers and fun that comes with doing Next Generation's uh, ministry. And I would have missed this beautiful past weekend where I received my first call to a church as a pastor. Keep our eyes on the prize. God is sending us, all of us, today. And we must obediently go and depend on Jesus, who is strong and who is able and who is powerful and who is the promise keeper. Today, the Lord is with us. We do not need to fear. And the giants, they're still out there. And they still look pretty big. And we are still here. And we might feel pretty small. But God is bigger than all of this. And our giants are grasshoppers to him. Let's pray. God... Please give us the grace to trust and obey and to take the step of faith into where you are sending us this morning. Thank you that we do not go alone, but we go always with your presence before and behind and with us hemming us in. Lord, will you give us the courage to take that next step forward where you're sending us this morning? Thank you so much that you are bigger than anything we might face and that the giants will fall before you, before your power. We love you, Lord, so much. Amen. Amen.